Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. It's our first episode of spring. What a great day. It's supposed to be sunny today, even if it rains the rest of the week. Spring is here. We are out of our long, cold winter. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, Laura Johnston, all roaring to go on a whole bunch of great stories that we published over the weekend. Good morning. Good morning. morning. Good morning. See, I, it's a Monday, and I can hear like a lilt in your voices. This is a good sign. <laughs> or maybe you're just lilt. excited because you learned this morning I'm off the rest of the week and I'm just doing a <laughs> no. podcast. Maybe it's that. I don't know. Let's begin. What would it take to make RTA completely free, and how likely is that to happen? Lisa, this is something we've been talking about in Cleveland since Cleveland Rising 2019 or so. We had this big community gathering to talk about how to move the region forward. This was the most intriguing idea. Justin Bibb, the new mayor of Cleveland, is interested in it, but now we know what the challenges are. Yeah, uh, RTA CEO India Birdsong came and talked to the editorial board last week, and she had a lot of interesting stuff to say. But as far as the free fares question, she says, it's not very likely. I mean, they get, you know, 18% of their revenue is from fares. And when they did do a free fare week last summer, the ridership went up 13%. And that, says Birdsong, causes unintended consequences. If you give free fares, you're probably going to have to have more equipment. You're going to have higher demand. You might have to change your routes a little bit. And she said free fares would cost RTA about $40 million a year. And those are pre-pandemic numbers. Okay, but we already do pay 75% of the money through our increased sales tax. So we're already making it mostly free. Um, I, she, look, she was fantastic in this meeting because we asked the question, and in five minutes she laid out the path and the challenges in, in as developed a form as I can imagine. And the idea that, you know, what happens if three times as many people start using transit and the cost of that, I'm thinking, well, wouldn't that be great? If three times as many people use the transit, that would mean all that fewer emissions from cars. And I mean, isn't that a laudable goal is to get three times as many people to use it? But as you said, that's a big equipment cost. Right. And they're already spending $300 million, you know, over the next year or so to upgrade their rail car. You know, a lot of their rail cars are 35 to 40 years old. And they're, you know, they've had a couple of failed bids on new rail cars. So, yeah, they're already going to have some um, uh, huge outlays for renovation of the rail lines. She's also worried that there are people that would just get on the bus and sit on it all day, which is not really the purpose. Although I would think you could pass some rules to make that less likely, but it's something they're concerned about. I don't know, though. After hearing it all, I, I was sitting back thinking, you know, we really should aim for this. This would put Cleveland on the national map as, as a city that's really trying to do something about climate change and equity and inclusion. She did say they're going to do a study, right, about the equity of their fares. 
That's correct. You know, they do right now. And Cleveland Rising brought this up. They said, you know, $5 a day plus 260 working days a year is about $1,300 for riders, you know. So they want to make sure that they can get a fare or a situation where it's more equitable to people who would likely use uh, RTA. And they are working on a pilot for a few different groups, like pregnant moms or something, right? Right, they- people who need to get to the hospital for health care because they want to make a dent in infant mortality rates, so they want to get health care facilities accessible to people who need them. All right, Layla Laura, I know it's Monday and it takes a while to get the brain firing, but come on, this is a big idea. What do you think? I, I mean, it, since we don't make that much money off the fares, I feel like there's probably a way to do it. And if everybody was riding the bus, I, I think that we'd all care more about RTA, right? (laughs) There's a lot of people that are like, whatever, I don't ride it. And Layla, you were kind of unimpressed with Cleveland Rising, except for this idea, as I recall. I thought, I remember you being like, wow, that's a pretty cool idea. Yeah, I mean, this was the only concrete idea that came out of Cleveland Rising. Everything else was just like rainbows and unicorns and free RTA. (laughs) Like that was the only, (laughs) only concrete idea. It was probably the only thing I remember at all from Cleveland Rising. So I do like the idea. But but she didn't note that there are cities that tried it and then had to stop. And so mm-hmm. I think that that is, um, you know, it's worth taking that in, that, that they, they other cities couldn't afford to, to, to sustain it. Right. Uh, and so I don't know if it's worth experimenting. I mean, sure, I, I, I don't know. You know. Wow, there's there's no optimism here. Let's <laughs> let's be the city that makes it work. I do take issue. I was part of Cleveland Rising. There were some other ideas that came out of that that like... were concrete, but don't ask me to remember what they were. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on. God, you're listening you really you painted to... yourself in that corner just now. What was what were you thinking? You're listening to today in Ohio. How might the probability of witnesses exercising their Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination help Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost in his lawsuit against the miscreants and corrupt House Bill 6? Leila, this is fascinating because the Fifth Amendment in criminal court is considered very different than the Fifth Amendment in civil court. It is, yeah. So the backstory here is that in the wake of the $60 million bribery scheme that secured the passage of House Bill 6, Yost sued a whole bunch of parties involved, and the state's lawsuit was seeking an unspecified amount in damages from First Energy, Energy Harbor, uh, Larry Householder, other House Bill 6 defendants, and others that Yost says were involved in the scheme. But then First Energy agreed to, the set, uh, to set aside a controversial decoupling provision authorized by House Bill 6 that would have allowed them to collect hundreds of millions of dollars from Ohio ratepayers. And in exchange, Yost had agreed to kind of put the lawsuit on hold until the criminal cases were done. Well, that was back in February 2021. And since then, House Bill 6 has been the subject of other lawsuits and investigations, and, and a bunch of the defendants have pleaded guilty. And the only two left are Householder and lobbyist Matt Borges are, you know, they're the last two facing you know, trial. So Yost is asking the court to allow discovery to proceed in his civil case. And the question is, why would he do that, given that so many of the parties involved would likely decline to answer questions to avoid self-incrimination? And one possible answer to that question, Bob Higgs reports, is really quite interesting and something that I don't know if any of us were aware of. It turns out that in, in civil cases, if a witness invokes their Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination and and, redu- and refuses to answer a question, 
the judge can instruct the jury that they are allowed to infer the worst about how that witness might have answered, provided that other evidence presented in the case supports that conclusion. And given the volumes of evidence that's, that has been produced over the course of HB6 investigations so far, it's a fair bet that Dave Yost would have that evidence. So he could definitely proceed with a case bringing those witnesses to the stand and letting their silence speak volumes. I, this is like you're on the stand in a civil trial. You're in a deposition, but you're being investigated for a criminal thing. You're asked, do you beat your wife? <laughs> you say, I take the fifth. The jury can infer based on the other evidence. Yes, you do. Even if you don't. This is kind of a brilliant move by Dave Yost because this will run up the tab in settlements if if a jury would be able to infer the worst and clearly here the evidence would allow them to do so kaching that's more money for the for the people of ohio we wondered when he did it why would he do that we have an answer it's a very different scenario in civil court yeah bob spoke to to legal experts who who offered other suggestions for why yost would be pushing for this case to forge ahead now and they don't all think that the fifth amendment factors so heavily into his calculus and another theory is that the longer you go the more you run the risk of memories fading and witnesses dying, already one witness, the longtime lobbyist Neil Clark, is, is dead. So perhaps Yost just wants to get the wheels turning on this case before it's too late. Also, if the court allows the case to restart, Yost's team of lawyers could, could cooperate with federal prosecutors to settle either the civil or criminal cases without a trial. Um, you know, one, one expert said, you know, lawyers in the civil case do have the ability to work with prosecutors in the criminal case. And by pulling resources or sharing information, they, they may be able to pressure the defendants to resolve the cases without trial. And another theory is, is just that they're entering election season. And Yost could point to the civil case as an example of him doing his job. So, you know, well, there was kind of a, a you know, wide gamut of, of explanations for why he's doing this. But the most interesting is the is the plead the fifth. <laughs> well, I also wouldn't be surprised if it's not just impatience. And let's face it, since Dave DeVillers left the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District, the criminal case has ground to a halt. So nobody right now is holding the people at First Energy who approved the bribery to account. Justice mm -hmm. is not being served. Dave Yo sat back in good faith waiting for the criminal case to proceed and the current u.s attorney just doesn't seem like he's interested in justice anymore and so nothing has happened mm -hmm. you know it was interesting we talked about this last week there's a judge in akron demanding that first energy tell him who approved the bribery because nobody's been charged yet even though everybody seems to know who it is so i i wonder if dave yost is just looking at the federal prosecutor saying you guys are clowns. You're not doing your job. I'm not going to suffer. The people of Ohio are not going to suffer because of your incompetence and lack of incentive. So does it matter that he, he agreed to this timeline? Is that going to factor into this? I mean, he did say, I'll wait until this is done in exchange for this consideration. But, and I mean, but he waited uh, based on good faith that the fe the criminal investigation would move forward. We're almost at the two year mark. And the only people charged were the people that were charged originally. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have all this evidence about the former OUC, the former uh, utilities chief of Ohio taking bribes. I mean, 
The First Energy has admitted it paid him bribes. Is he charged with bribery? No. The people at First Energy that authorized $60 million in bribes, which the company has admitted to, have not been charged with a crime. I think Dave Yost agreed to a timeline believing that the, the prosecutors were going to do this with diligence, and they're not. So he's saying, I'm not waiting anymore. I want permission to proceed. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. It's an interesting. Spe- I, I, I love to see if it goes forward, and then the Fifth Amendment will mean more money for Ohio. Mm. It's today in Ohio. Has fracking lived up to all of its economic hype of a decade ago? How big a business is it in Ohio? Laura, I remember back in the early John Kasich years of governor, we talked about fracking a lot, that it had mm-hmm. un, uh, unbelievable potential in Ohio because so much of it was under the eastern part of the state. So where are we? Well, unbelievable potential and unbelievable environmental effects that we didn't know about. But we haven't heard that much about it. So, yeah, Eric Heising went to see how it's going. And it's really hard to tell how much this is affecting Ohio's economy. It's definitely added to it, but the numbers are very squishy. And the way that Eric explains it, Ohioans have jobs that didn't previously exist, but there's not a solid number to put on it. There are more than uh, 3,600 permits to operate natural gas wells in Ohio, though. There are also 226 active underground injection wells. That's where companies use it to store brine, the liquid waste produced after blasting underground shale with water, and they inject it back into the ground, and they don't actually have to tell you what's in that brine. But there, one estimate says there's more than 200,000 jobs tied to the industry directly or indirectly or indirectly. The problem is that includes people like truck drivers who do a lot more things than just work in the oil and gas industry. So would would the people behind this argue that it is living up to its promise or are they still saying there's still promise to come? We still have potential we haven't met. I don't think anybody's really talking about this growing at any point. They did say, you know, you get a lot more bang at the beginning because they're doing the construction work to put in these wells. And once they're operating, it takes a lot fewer people to keep them running. Also, there was once talk about a, a, turning a former coal-powered electrical plant in Belmont County into a $6 billion refinery that would make ethylene and other plastics from shale gas. They promised about 7,000 construction jobs, 700 permanent jobs. That's never been built. So I don't think we're ever going to... I mean, do we ever live up to the promise of of a new industry? Um, a study by CSU found that the industry directly and indirectly involves about $91 billion in the economy between 2012 and the first half of 2020. And uh, the state says about 9,400 people work in industries directly related to oil and gas. So it's not nothing, but I just... I don't think it's changed the state for the better. If I could offer a Texas perspective, um, <laughs> yeah, because they're you know the Permian Basin in Western Texas, they were doing a lot of fracking back in the day, and it was so. It, I mean, it was it was like a boom and bust cycle. I mean, they couldn't get enough people. They were building man camps because this is way out in the middle of nowhere. They were building hotels to hold all these new workers. But as soon as that shale played out. Everything disappeared. The town went back to being almost moribund. I mean, so, yeah, it's kind of a boom-bust kind of business. Not like microchip factories, right? So <laughs> Correct. That's, that's, what, that's what we really want. All right, you're listening to Today in Ohio. 
With the Ohio Supreme Court's rejection of the third round of legislative maps, because the Republicans gerrymandered them yet again, where do we stand? How, what is the redistricting commission doing now? And Lisa, how is Attorney General Dave Yost, who has no role in this thing, trying to help move it along? It apparently seems that Attorney General Yost just happens to have a couple of independent map makers on retainer. So <laughs> that's kind of interesting. He hired them uh, back when there was, you know, issues with, you know, the maps going on. But he offered them to the redistricting commission. Their names are Sean Trend and Bernie Groffman. They were hired by the Virginia Supreme Court to draw legislative maps in that state after the Supreme Court criticized the, the map making in that state. Um, Yost also also suggested that the redistricting committee committee have more frequent meetings. And he says, I'm not saying should, you know, I'm saying should, not shall. He's just offering advice. He's not ordering anything. But I think it's kind of funny that he just happened to have a couple of map makers, which on Saturday, the redistricting committee met. They voted unanimously for once to hire two outside map makers and one mediator to, you know, go over any controversies. They have meetings scheduled for tonight and tomorrow morning. They have a March 28th deadline, which is next Monday. They've got to get this done. But yeah, I and you know, they don't have really enough time to hire map makers, do you think? Well, they might want to take advantage of Dave Yost's offer. I mean, he he does sense that this thing is so far off the rails that it's causing problems for all of Ohio. I thought it was a a decent gesture of him to offer. I was glad to see they're taking it seriously, but let's face it, they're also doing stuff in the background that's pretty sleazy. Nobody's really putting their name behind it, but some are talking about trying to impeach the chief justice. Four people voted to do this, but they're only going to impeach the chief justice, which they're not. I don't think any of them are that foolish or even that brave. Putting their name behind that would get instant vilification. And Mike DeWine condemned it as soon as he was asked Mm -hmm. about it. Uh, But we'll see. I mean, let's hope they do the right thing. Let's hope they work together as they're supposed to and that the fourth time is the charm. But as you said, though, in the background, though, that GOP activist lawsuit that was filed that we've talked about before on this podcast, they actually have appointed a three-judge panel to consider restoring the last map that was rejected by the state Supreme Court. Um, Yeah, so there's movement in that area. The the three judges are Algernon Marbley. We know who he is. He's a Clinton appointee. And then two Trump appointees, Judge Benjamin Beaton and Amul Thapar. So, hmm. Yeah, I'll be surprised if they believe that they actually have uh, any way to tie into this this is a state issue it's in the state supreme court it's moving along so it'll be interesting to see if they bigfoot it you're listening to today in ohio what's the issue for the greater cleveland regional transit authority's use of natural gas powered buses and how is it coping Layla, this is kind of an interesting story it's tying together two previous conversations one about the rta one about natural gas Yeah, so according to Caitlin Durbin's reporting, RTA's gas detection sensor system stopped functioning at their Triscuit garage, which is where their compressed natural gas buses are fueled and stored. And they've ordered a new system, but shipping and delivery issues have have delayed its arrival until at least May. So in the meantime, 
They've put their trolley fleet back into commission on some routes, and the trolleys are currently being used as needed on four routes, usually served by buses. 2, 54, 83, and 86 are those routes, and they'll be outfitting them with bike racks over the next two weeks for folks who ride and and ride their bikes. So the trolleys were, were largely phased out as part of the recent bus route redesign, but the vehicles remain in excellent condition and can still be used. Um, and it sounds like RTA is really trying to be nimble around supply chain issues, just like the rest of us have to be. <laughs> Are they they're gasoline powered or diesel powered? That that's the difference. Yeah, I don't really know much about the the gas uh, about their their uh, energy needs. But they're not natural gas. You know that. That's why they're going with the trolleys. Yeah, I'm assuming that that's that that's that's why. All right, you're listening to Today in Ohio. What is longtime Ohio Congresswoman Marcy Captor's latest big idea for the Great Lakes, this time about developing the economy? Laura, you're the lady of the lake. Yeah, this is really cool. So Captor has introduced legislation that would establish a new federal entity called the Great Lakes Authority that basically would promote regional development in, in the Great Lakes states of Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Minnesota, New York, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. The idea is really an old one. It'd be like the Tennessee Valley Authority, which was founded as part of the New Deal during the Great Depression. And obviously, you can point to a lot of projects that that accomplished and helped kickstart that region's economy. So Captor said in a statement that even though the region is the industrial workhorse that powers America, that we need new efforts to catalyze our revitalization, you know, all the Rust Belt jokes in here. And she's blaming bad trade deals that outsource living wage jobs, which you can argue, but I'm all for giving this entity $30 million beginning next year to try and and create more of an economy around these states. Is it is it an economy for manufacturing and industry or is it more of a recreational economy? It's more in the manufacturing vein. It's got a large array of things she wants it to do to guide long-term economic development and environmental conservation, uh, job creation, workforce education, restore and protect the environment, foster innovation to expand manufacturing, and promote cleaner and more sustainable power production, raise some money for infrastructure. You know, we've been talking about this for a long time in Cleveland, the idea of green manufacturing and advanced manufacturing, where you could actually, you know, build wind turbine parts or things that help the environment but are still kind of our core base um, economy issues and and kind of get a win-win. Is it more of a regional thing or is it something that is based on having the gigantic bodies of water? That's a good question. I, I mean, I think that there's a lot in common that these states have. You know, obviously they've got all the fresh water they need for a lot of manufacturing. And we've talked about that before with um, all of the groups in Cleveland that are trying to use water as one of our big powerhouse economic initiatives. So I think there's a lot in common. I don't think it all has to do with the lake, but more like these states all have the same problems than are the heartland of America. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How many donations did the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center receive after news broke over the weekend that the Browns have won the battle for quarterback Deshaun Watson, who was accused in 22 civil suits of sexual harassment and abuse? Lisa, this is one of the most popular stories on our website for the entire weekend. What's behind it? 
The Cleveland Rape Crisis Center got more than a thousand donations when news broke of the Deshaun Watson trade on Friday. So this happened in about 24 hours. That they no word on the money amount, but a thousand donations. That's pretty awesome. Uh, they also issued a statement over the weekend. They said they know that the Watson story is triggering for far too many friends and neighbors in Cleveland, and say they are here to help. And they offered up their 24/7, you know, rape crisis hotline. And they said every donation sends a clear message in the Deshaun Watson case. You know, we reached out to them last week. We we're trying to do a story before the trade to say, hey, what do you think about this? And they wouldn't comment on it, which was surprising. How, how, do we have any idea how the word of the donation spread? Was there a network of people on social media saying, this is terrible for Cleveland, donate to the Rape Crisis Center? Was it just a natural outpouring of people who were outraged? It seemed like it was pretty natural and grassroots. They didn't really mention any, you know, uh, cons- you know campaign. Uh, I, I think we did hear about people on Reddit talking about oh, okay. it. And mm-hmm. it makes sense that... That if people were talking, that they said, this is something you can do. But Lisa, I, you say they send a clear message, right? And I read that quote and I was like, I'm not getting a very clear message yeah. from this statement. It was very carefully worded. Mm-hmm. There was nothing against Watson or the Browns in it. And they're saying it's triggering, but they don't say what mm-hmm. is triggering. Mm-hmm. And so. Well, I, ha- I can tell you, I, I sent out a note on the subtext account. Friday saying, hey, we're going to go try and talk to some of these 22 women to find out what the stories are, if they'll talk to us. And I got back very quickly in short order, more than 100 responses, almost every one of them angry about what the Browns are doing, not just just dismissive, very angry, not going to be fans anymore, including some women who said every time they see him, it's going to remind them of their own abuse situation. And they can't believe that this team that they have followed and, and adored for all these years would do that to them. That's what, that's the triggering Mm -hmm. part. Uh, And, and they're angry. I mean, this is the Browns are losing fans because of this, you know, and sometimes I wonder when you have out of town people come in and not really get to know the city, do they make mistakes? This is not something Cleveland is welcoming by any means. Yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. I do want to say that uh, there is a little bit of a Cleveland connection here with Watson in that his attorney, Rusty Harden of Houston, uh, represented former pilot flying J President Mark Hazelwood, who was convicted in a fraud scheme back in 2018. And of course, pilot flying J is owned by the Haslams. Um, I do know Rusty Harden personally. I covered him as a reporter in the 80s when he was an assistant district attorney. He's a hell of an attorney, I will say that yeah it's just an odd connection to have represented the Haslam's company right this guy you wonder if that's how they started talking I was surprised at how long it took for the Browns to put out statements about this The, the news was breaking toward the end of last week Friday and Saturday they didn't finally issue a statement until Sunday the gist of which was we talked to him face to face and so we have a good feeling that he's a good person and will be a good presence in Cleveland. I don't think a whole lot of Clevelanders are buying that yet. Of course, if he starts scoring touchdowns, I imagine Mm. people will turn around. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. How quickly will we see the implementation of police reforms now that a federal judge has signed off on incorporating those voter-approved reforms into a federal consent decree with the city? Layla, it wasn't really a surprise that the judge signed them, but what happens next? 
Well, it seems like they're going to move as fast as they can. U.S. District Judge Solomon Oliver approved the changes to Cleveland's consent decree, which now clears the way for the city officials to begin implementing Issue 24. It was after a 45-minute hearing last week in which Oliver questioned the attorneys from the city and the Justice Department and consent decree monitoring team. And then he ended the hearing and didn't formally approve the changes, but it was the next day that uh, the, the, you know, the approval came through. And Cleveland Law Director Mark Griffin said at the hearing that Mayor Justin Bibbs' administration is going to swiftly begin recruiting people to fill the 13-member Cleveland Police Commission. The commission is going to operate under its previous mission until seven members of the new commission are approved, which will give it a quorum to start to start operating under its new mandate. You know, this, this really has the potential to be quite a different situation for the police. I mean, we've had kind of rubber stamp investigations for years. Carrie Howard as public safety directors brought some rigor the past couple of years, but these these folks are independent, right? So right. they can go in any direction they choose. That's right. I mean, the commission, it was created in 2015 as part of that consent decree, but until now, it has really just been like soliciting feedback from the community on police policies and making recommendation for policy changes, but it's going to be dramatically different. The, commis- the commission's going to be in charge of pol- police discipline. It's going to have the final say on police policies and, and will decide what training officers are going to receive and, and have a bunch of other responsibilities. It's going to, you know, issue 24 also gave broader authority to the Office of Professional Standards and, and Civilian Police Review Board to investigate police misconduct. It, it moves the offices from under the safety department to its own branch in the city. It's it, it, This was a powerful uh, mandate from voters. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be transformative beyond the consent decree. So think about the Tamiya Chapman case. That was the chase that started in Cleveland, went all the way across town, ended up with the young 12-year-old Tamiya Chapman killed by the people who were being pursued. And Cleveland came out with an investigation that said, yeah, there were some technical violations, but mostly this was okay and didn't want to do much discipline. And then later, when others took a deeper look, they said, not a chance. You did a terrible investigation. You really didn't get into this at all. Now, going forward, if you had that case, these are the people that would be investigating and making statements about it, right? It sounds like that that would be the case. You're right. You're right. So that would be a completely different approach to... Could be refreshing. Can't wait to see how it plays out. It's Today in Ohio, and that wraps up the Monday conversation. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back on Tuesday.